Uh, thank you so very much for being here. Uh, my name is Zach Hopkins, and uh, I'll be telling you more about what we have planned for today. Um, but for now, I actually want to open up. Let's, let's read from 2 Timothy together, if we could please. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Hopefully you've got a Bible or you can click on a Bible or something. And uh, we'll, we'll begin with prayer and the Word, as is appropriate. And then we'll give some context for what we're doing today. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 13 and 14. Uh, hear God's word. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I want to read that text to, to give us a context for a prayer this morning, this afternoon, as we consider what it means to, to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Lord, you have brought us to this place, and uh, for many of us, as I've been hearing through uh, many trials, and so Lord, we're thankful to be here. We ask that as we gather, that you would stir our hearts with fresh affection for Jesus today that you would renew us in our commitment to be disciples of Jesus and recommitted to the holy ministry of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that whether we are ruling elders or teaching elders or our church members and observers today, uh, that you would encourage us as we meet together, that you would expand our minds as we grow intellectually, but not before you inflame our hearts with love for you. And so, Lord, uh, be with us even as we present today, uh, as we speak, as we listen. May things be said and be heard to the glory of your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, very good. Thank you all for being here. Um, again, my name is Zach Hopkins, and I'm just going to provide some introductory information, actually, before we get into the, the meat of what we're doing here today. This is our second year hosting at the uh, Leadership Institute, but our third year doing some workshops with the EPC, so we're really thankful for that. So we are the Westminster Society, and the first question is, is uh, what is that? So sorry for those of you who are on that side of the room. Uh, that's, that's all we have to work with. But what is the Westminster Society? And I just want to uh, answer it with a, a few simple things. One, uh, we are a networking group of EPC teaching elders and ruling elders informal networking group, uh, just as we have friendships with one another and grow together and introduce ourselves to one another, that's the network. So uh, it's very casual in that sense. Uh, but we are a group that is looking to promote what we have called confessional churchmanship. Um, confessional churchmanship and, and what does that mean? And it's, it's very important that you hear at the very, very beginning that what the Westminster Society is, is a, uh, a, a positive group for the promotion of our confessional doctrine, not because we have any suspicion that our denomination is running adrift or anything like that, but we just want to be the ones taking the initiative to host the conversations about 
confessional theology and practical ministry and applied theology. Uh, and uh, your attendance here indicates that maybe you want to be a part of those conversations as well. Uh, and again, it's not the case that those conversations aren't already happening in our denomination. It's just that we set out to be a very intentional organization to say, let's, let's get together and let's talk about our confession. Let's talk about our theology. Let's talk about how it influences our ministries and to do it in a way that shapes our, our ministerial practices as ruling and teaching elders. So we're trying to aim towards the very practical applications of everything that we talk about as well. But it's a churchmanship that is for the good of the church. So uh, we're very thankful that the, the EPC has uh, allowed us these time slots and encouraged us even to pursue these opportunities to promote the idea of uh, churchmanship, uh, serving the church with vigor, uh, because we believe that the church uh, deserves our service and our intellectual service, our emotional service, and everything in between. So that's what we want to be all about. So it's a, it's a very positive thing. And we say that because for the first year or two, people were kind of asking us, you know, are, do you guys have some kind of agenda? Uh, are you some kind of, you know, uh, secret movement insider in the EPC or something like that? And it's a fair question. I think because uh, sometimes we get suspicious, but uh, hear me say loud and clear, no, we're not. <laughs> uh, the positive promotion of confessional churchmanship. Um, and in that, we are communicating that, uh, that the way we should position ourselves towards the Westminster Standards, the Confession of Faith and Catechism, is by a mode of subscription that fits within our category of good faith subscription. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. But we're trying to promote this idea of uh, ex animo subscription uh, from the heart. Uh, that is to say that when we profess in our vows that this is the doctrine that we believe and we teach, we want to say, not just externally and formally, you know, sure, giving a nod to that, but genuinely and sincerely saying, this is not just the confession of my doctrine externally, but it is the sincere conviction of my heart and soul that this is what I believe the Bible teaches, and promoting that idea of heartfelt confessional theology. Uh, so a really applied sense of ex animo subscription from the heart in a good faith system. So that's kind of what we are. And the next question is just briefly what we do. And um, you're already attending what we do, partially. Um, but one thing that we do is that we host uh, networking lunches during the General Assembly. So every day this week, there will be a networking lunch sponsored by the Westminster Society uh, in which someone will give a presentation in the, the stream and vein of what we've just said we want to be all about. Um, now, I'm, I'm not saying that you should attend all of those, but if you want to, great, because there's plenty of other wonderful offerings, but we just want to give an opportunity each day of the week uh, that if you're looking for some rich and robust uh, theological reflection, please attend one of our lunches. And I'll tell you more about that schedule here in, in just a bit. We also put out an annual journal, uh, a print journal. This is uh, our volume three. The theme for this year was the beauty of the local church. Um, so uh, there are articles in here from pastors and missionaries and seminary faculty, all from the EPC. So it's a grassroots effort to, to put on paper some of those reflections and then use as an encouragement and uh, to all those who attend the GA. But then these also provide the basis of the very talks that we'll hear today. Uh, they're all people who have been authors in our journal. And uh, to that end, you have an opportunity to be an author as well. And I'll tell you about that here in, in just a minute. And the final thing, of course, is where you're at right now. Uh, we also 
uh, by the request of the General Assembly Office, host this Reformed Theology track of the Leadership Institute. And last year was the first year we had that opportunity, and it seemed to be successful enough that they said, hey, do you want to do this again? And we said, be very thankful to do that. And uh, hopefully, if any of you were here last year, uh, you enjoyed that and anticipate a good year this year as well. So again, thank you so much for being here, and, and this is the Westminster Society and what we're all about. And uh, to that end, just a real quick uh, acknowledgement that uh, we're already looking to next year to a, a journal, Volume 4. The theme is Salvation by Grace, the Ordo Salutis. And so if you would like to submit something to that for consideration, we would be very excited to receive that from you. And uh, there are details on page 287 on how you go about doing that. And what we're going to do at the top of every hour is uh, just give away two copies. So uh, just the first two people who won, and here you go. So maybe next hour toward the back, we'll start back there, okay? So two at the top of every hour, all right? Don't get one to him, you don't get one? Sorry. Give it to somebody else. So uh, it, it's a call. You don't have to be a teaching elder, teaching elders, ruling elders. In fact, we would love it if ruling elders would submit articles about this topic, Salvation by Grace, the Ordo Salutis. And again, uh, details are on 287. And if you don't get a copy here at the General Assembly, these are available on Amazon for a very modest price. There's no $7. There's no profiteering going on with this journal. Let me promise you that. Okay. So that's just a general introduction to, to who we are and, and what we're all about. Uh, Yes, ma'am. Could you give a brief thing about your history, like are you forgetting how you started? Oh, sure. So, um, so uh, originally it was just uh, four teaching elders who had lunch together four years ago at a general assembly and said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we did basically this? Uh, and it materialized and was successful enough and seemed to draw interest of people, so we continued it. So it was just originally a four friends who wanted to promote this conversation and draw other people into it, and that's it, really. <laughs> Great, thank you. Thanks for the question. Uh, so our theme for this year, and the theme for all of these Leadership Institute uh, presentations, and also the theme for all of the networking lunches, is going to be on the beauty of the local church. So that was our theme for this year's journal, and that will represent our themes uh, for these talks. What you can expect today, it's, it's up here as well, but uh, the schedule here, uh, we're going to be hearing about the church and its common doctrine, first of all, and then about the headship of Jesus Christ from Scott Redd, and then about the church in the Old Testament from Mike Glodo, and then finally about common grace from our moderator. So we have to address him appropriately when we see Case come in the room. I don't think I see him in here yet. But when he comes here, let's be sure to address him appropriately. And then throughout the rest of the week, uh, these three sessions on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Preparing for Worship by Paul Bamel, and then The Great Commission by Steve Woodworth. Steve is a, a World Outreach missionary who works with I-10. Uh, I'll say it then, I'll say it now, I think I-10 is one of the most exciting things that World Outreach is doing in the EPC. So it's just my personal conviction, but uh, Steve Woodworth will come and share about the Great Commission in the local church. And then on Friday, we're going to hear a dual presentation on uh, exegetical theology, the gathered Old Testament and New Testament church from David Hoffemeyer and Aaron White. So, lots of opportunities for you to, to engage in this dialogue, this discussion, and, and hear from these presenters, but then also have some time for question and answers after, and uh, we would really appreciate your attendance at these things. So, um, but as far as uh, today, 
Uh, my topic that we'll be looking at here for the next uh, minutes or so is the church and its common doctrine, and the common doctrine of the church. And I just have a discussion question here for us at the beginning. You see it up there and uh, in a room full of uh, church officers. Surely there's lots of things that we could come up with here. And I'm curious to have you just toss some things out. What are the distinguishing characteristics of the Reformed tradition? And as you're thinking about that, um, the distinguishing characteristics of the Reformed tradition, the reason why I'm asking this question uh, is because this is, this is a question I really like to ask ministerial candidates um, as they pursue entry into a Reformed denomination. What's your understanding about the characteristics of the denomination to which you are trying to enter and become an officer for? And... Um, the, the, the point that I really want to arrive at, if we don't arrive at it uh, uh, communally, is something I don't hear them say very often. Uh, but I wonder if we can gather it. So, to you all, what are some of the distinguishing characteristics of the Reformed tradition? Let's just toss them out. No need to raise your hand. Uh, our understanding of sacraments. Okay, sacramental theology, very good. Scripture over tradition. A, scripture, a high view of Scripture. Uh, I've heard it said uh, uh, five solas uh, and... Uh, authority of Scripture, and the sovereignty of God. Okay. All, all wonderful things that we all love. Covenant theology. Covenant theology. Very good. Reformed means confessional. Okay. Reformed means confessional. Thank you. You know where I'm headed. Uh, what, what other, other thoughts about distinguishing characteristics of the Reformed tradition? Regular principle. A, an understanding of uh, theology of worship. Others. Uh, world in life, uh, a comprehensive view. Christ is king, the, kingdom the kingdom theology, Christ is king. In the back. Liberty of conscience. Liberty of conscience. That's a great chapter. The preeminence of Christ. The preeminence of Christ, yeah. I mean, we, can, we could probably list uh, many, many things here, couldn't we? Um, but what I especially want to emphasize is that the Reformed tradition is a confessional tradition. Um, not that other Protestant traditions don't have confessions of faith, of course, uh, but we are emphatic about the nature of putting our faith down on paper. Does anybody else have those Baker Four Volumes of Reformed Confessions uh, that they put out? I didn't even know that the Reformed faith had that many confessions and all its varied uh, expressions. You've got those. You know what I'm talking about. Um, but of course, ours is the Westminster Confession, and we are a confessional denomination. But when you start talking about what it means to be confessional... Um, you can get a lot of perspectives on that. And I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of perspectives on that and probably in this room. And I want to honor that because uniquely here in the EPC, we of course have our motto, uh, one of the three parts that in essentials, unity. And that we have unity in these necessary essentials. And of course, what one means when they say the essentials, uh, whether it is the uh, you know, actual essentials document or it is something else, uh, actually the 2002 General Assembly put out a response from the Permanent uh, Committee on Theology. Professor Gloder, were you on that at that time? Uh, if you read the explanatory statement to the essentials of our faith, you will find this very important line that says, the Westminster Confession of Faith is our standard of doctrine as found in Scripture. And so that when we talk about being confessional, we're of course talking about confessionalism in the context of the Westminster Confession and catechisms. And we in the American Presbyterian tradition operate within this view of subscription known as good faith subscription, or as uh, Jeff Jeremiah calls it, open and honest subscription. And of course, that distinguishes us from uh, other American Presbyterian traditions. 
And uh, you probably know that and generally okay with that. Uh, we have our niche in the EPC and we're quite comfortable with that and we want to celebrate it. But we also want to be very clear about what we mean when we say that we are a confessional denomination and how we go about applying confessionalism practically to our ministries as it shapes our theology and practice. So it's good to be confessional. Uh, as Reformed Presbyterians, inherently we are confessional. But getting a clear sense of what that means and what it looks like in practice is also very important. And especially what I want to touch on today, how that shapes the character and spirit of our ministries how it shapes the character and spirit of our ministries. I think that's a very important point. So you've probably often heard this, this mantra, right? That uh, doctrine divides. Uh, you've probably been in a conversation with someone and have this said to you as some form of rebuttal, perhaps. Um, the, the main thing that I want to promote today in, in this time slot is that when we start talking about unity, it is our doctrinal unity that is the foundation of our fraternal unity, okay? So in the EPC, we love to talk about our unity, and yes and amen, we should. But what I want to argue is that the thing that holds up that fraternal unity that we love so much, that we celebrate, that we enjoy, that we should, is the fact that inherently we are united in our doctrinal convictions. That our doctrinal convictions hold up the fraternal unity that we love so much. And so we can't supplant one for the other, but rather see a, a good relationship between the two. That our fraternal unity is supported by our doctrinal unity. And that really is the thrust of what we're talking about today in the church and its common doctrine. Um, so, uh, what I'm going to do here is just uh, briefly reflect on a few aspects of the confession, talk about how doctrinal unity uh, blesses our church, and then spend the rest of the time doing some application, hopefully very, very clear and, and, and basic application. But when we're talking about the church, we're looking at chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession. Uh, and, of course, we understand the church to have uh, two, two forms, if you like, the invisible church and the visible church. Westminster Confession 25.1 speaks of the invisible church as all the elect who have been, are, or ever will be gathered into one in Christ. All the elect is the invisible church. So in, in the midst of so many people's comments about fractured unity in the churches and different denominations and all the rest, the answer to the unity of the church ultimately is that as an organic spiritual unity we have as the invisible church, an undivided unity in Jesus Christ, our head. And we'll hear more about that later on this afternoon. Uh, but the church is one in that very beautiful sense. We are united together. But when it comes to the physical expression, also known as the visible church, the unity of the visible church is represented through, chapter 25, section 4 says, the reception and instruction of the gospel, the manner of sacramental administration, and the purity of public worship. Now, the, when I went back to, to double-check that again, I was uh, really interested in that because usually when we talk about the marks of the church, we talk about uh, gospel sacraments and discipline. But here in this section, uh, discipline is expressed through worship, which can also have a connotation application of discipline, of course, how you apply the sacraments. But in this case, uh, rather than uh, our friend Mark Devers' nine marks, Westminster says three. So... The unity of the visible church is expressed as we have the clear instruction of the gospel, the proper administration of the sacraments, and the purity of our 
public worship. So we're talking about physical church spaces now. Your church and my church and our church gather together, and we know that we struggle oftentimes to maintain our unity as a body. There are things that seek to divide us, and there are issues that we have. Um, I suppose if we had a, a networking lunch on issues in my church, everybody could get up and talk about things, right? Um, but when it comes to these spiritual and doctrinal issues, there are limitations that the church has when it is on a spectrum of more or less pure. Uh, the Westminster Divines, of course, are, are wise enough to understand that there is no perfect church this side of glory in its visible sense. The limitations of the church militant, the church on earth, are that even the purest churches under heaven are subject both to impurity and error. So your church and my church is subject to impurity and, and error. It is a, a temptation that we have to stray from the truth, to stray from accurate teaching, to stray into false gospels. And so we want to understand in a confessional denomination, as confessional elders in Christ's church, how can we operate within our confessional theology to promote this doctrinal unity that will bless the church? Rather than give people the idea that doctrine divides, how can we establish the doctrinal unity that we have that promotes fraternal unity? So how does our public confession, our doctrine, aid the peace and purity and especially the unity of the church? And um, there are lots of answers that could be given to that. And I have no doubt that you'd probably even give better answers than what I'm about to say here. Um, but I have just three things, especially, that I want to reflect on with you about how confessional doctrine promotes unity in our churches. Okay? And those three things are a unity in perspicuity, a unity in fidelity, and a unity in humility. Perspicuity, fidelity, and humility. Uh, everybody laughs when they talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, when they say, how come for the word for clear they didn't use a more clear word, right? Everyone laughs about that, right? But um, those three things, the unifying benefits of confessional doctrine. So first, uh, the unity of perspicuity or clarity. Uh, want to set out that our church confession provides for us uh, points of clarity for us that promote our unity. Uh, James Bannerman, uh, that great Scottish uh, ecclesiastical theologian, said that the church is the authorized custodian and teacher of divine truth. It is the church's role to be the instructor of the truth of God. Uh, there is no other institution to which God has entrusted the instruction of divine truth than His church on earth. And so we must be clear about our doctrine so that we not fall into a word that used to be very pervasive in the theological literature that is often not seen so much anymore, latitudinarianism. Anybody want to take a stab at latitudinarianism? Um, fuzziness, right? Latitudinarianism, especially uh, in the 16th century, or sorry, the 17th century, was a, a movement that went to, to, to be less specific about our doctrine and go out towards the fringes. And it was usually the Reformed, especially the, the, the Calvinists uh, of that era, who were constantly critiquing other movements as being latitudinarian in their views of theology, not being specific, not being clear, which probably why the Reformed tradition is so into putting on paper, so as to 
to be publicly examined our views, which is a very good thing. Uh, but to that end, uh, Samuel Miller, the great old Princeton theologian, said, Be careful to present and diligently to keep before the eyes of one another and the eye of the public that good confession which you are commanded to profess before many witnesses. And we want to say that our confessional theology gives us the ability to be clear about what we believe so as not to hide on the fringes the details of our theology. That is, for me personally, one of the greatest blessings of being a part of a confessional tradition. Because if someone asks me, uh, what is the conviction of this church on this issue? I have a document to which to turn and, and give an answer, largely. And that's really one of the greatest blessings. And we have this responsibility to be clear uh, because... There is a need for clarity in our age, as there is in every age, isn't there? But I'm sure that you could especially think of needs of our time to which we need to be explicitly clear about what we believe. And, uh, of course, the difficulty is in navigating these conversations, especially pastoral. We oftentimes have to qualify everything we say all the time, don't we? Um, but at a certain point, we have to just have in black and white clear language about what we believe about marriage, what we believe about the Trinity, what we believe about Christ. If we're not clear on these things, we're doing a disservice to the world to which we are called to go with the truth of the gospel. So think, for example, I was reflecting on this, that uh, your church and mine experience an influx two times a year, don't they? <laughs> right? Christmas and Easter. And uh, I'm glad that they do. Uh, I'm glad that there are people who are in those pews on that uh, Lord's Day who will never come back except for next year. And so how important is it actually for them to hear upon the lips of God's people, uh, I believe Christ resurrected. Uh, when we put into the mouths of God's people the clarity of our convictions, it blesses those to which we are called to bear testimony of that truth of Christ's resurrection. I believe that the third day He rose again from the dead. Uh, our people need that confession in their mouths. Uh, and if, if you as a pastor or as an elder are not giving them that opportunity, let me just gently encourage you to do that. Uh, recite the creed in your Lord's Day worship services if you aren't already. Put the truth of God in the mouths of the people of God by way of a public confession. So, this unity of clarity that our doctrinal convictions in written format as a confessional tradition give us the ability to be clear. Uh, the second benefit of confessional theology for unity in the church is a unity in fidelity, faithfulness. Hopefully you recognize ordination vow number three. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms of this church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And uh, when I mentioned the idea of ex animo subscription uh, earlier, it's that uh, zeroing in on this idea of sincerity. Um, that I truly receive in faithfulness that this is not just the doctrine of this church, but it is my doctrine as well, held from the heart. That we are called in confessional traditions to confess our faith faithfully and to the end that we be faithful in our confession of faith. It is very important that we reflect on this topic. So a unity in fidelity. Now it's, it's helpful for us to remember that uh, this faithful tradition of uh, confessionalism uh, helps us uh, realize that we are at the end of the day Catholic Christians and we ought to be. 
Uh, and I know that uh, a lot of times folks in our, our pews sometimes stumble over what that means, perhaps. Uh, and I know some churches even revoke that portion of the creed out of their public confession so as not to provide a stumbling block. But rather than uh, try to provide an apology for it as if we are sorry, let us be clear that we are Catholic Christians and that our Westminster tradition includes all the benefits of the patristic era and the Reformation era, and that we stand in this long line of faithfulness uh, so that we don't go about subscribing to all these additional creeds because we understand the Westminster Confession to represent that tradition of creeds. We, we honor those creeds, we believe them, but you don't make vows to them. And that's because the content of that doctrine is included already in these. Uh, Charles Hodge said that the Westminster Confession represents three distinct classes of doctrine. That which is true for all Christians, that which is true for all Protestants, and then that which is true for all Reformed Protestant Christians. But it gets more specific as it, as it goes. And the creeds and confessions help us in continuing that line of faithfulness so we don't go about assuming that it is our responsibility to be uh, inventive and uh, pr pursue ingenuity for ingenuity's sake, just to be new and exciting in the way we express our doctrine, when in reality, uh, I think uh, we're seeing that uh, the younger generations are actually quite hungry for something aged and historic and concrete that they can put their hands on that has been tried and true through the ages. Uh, we want to pursue that historic line of faithfulness and continue it in our day as well. So, uh, in this unity of fidelity, uh, it also helps us to standardize the doctrinal commitments of office bearers in the church. And, and this is a really important point, isn't it? Because as, as fellow officers in Christ's church, uh, you and I, in Jesus Christ, of course, are on the same team, to put it as simply as possible. And that I think... Practically, one of the great benefits of a faithfulness in the unifying confessional doctrine is, is I can look you in the eye and trust that your doctrine is mine and mine is yours because ours is together the doctrine of our great tradition. And that gives me great ability to, with, with, with comfort and excitement, welcome you into the pulpit of our church because we have shared doctrinal commitments. Now, you might have commitments that go even beyond the details of the confession. But what we can be sure of is that your doctrinal convictions won't be less than the nature of the confession itself. And that should promote this idea of a common faithfulness, one with another, of that fraternal faithfulness in which we see each other pulling together, working together, preaching the same gospel, uh, ministering in the same tradition, that builds that sense of we are working together in this faithful ministry. And I think that's very important. Uh, and so you should also uh, ask, uh, what are some other ways that confessional theology promotes fidelity in the church? How, how will confessional theology promote faithfulness in your ministry? Uh, how will you, ministering in a Reformed tradition, take that history and encourage greater faithfulness to that great historic tradition going forward? I think we should be asking that question based off of our confessional tradition. Uh, but I'm, I'm moving fast because this is my favorite one, actually. Um, so perspicuity, fidelity, but humility. Unity in humility. And uh, on this point, I want to say two things. One, that our doctrine is not ours. 
meaning is not our own. It doesn't chiefly belong to us in one sense, one could argue. But then also that public confessions delimit ecclesiastical authority. And we'll say more on that here in, in just a minute. But first, a unity and humility in the sense that our doctrine is not our own. Um, in addition to that third ordination vow, uh, many of us hopefully remember the fourth one as well, where we promise that if at any time we find ourselves out of accord or with a changed view, we will on our own initiative make known to our presbytery the change that has happened in our view since the assumption of this ordination vow. Now, in my personal experience, I've never witnessed that process in a presbytery, um, but Lord willing, I hope to one day because I think it represents a very humble disposition towards confessional theology that says, I want to be so open and honest with my subscription that if genuinely I have a change, rather than keep it to myself, rather than take this notion that my job is at risk and I prefer my job over my faithfulness to my confession to Christ, I will come forward and say, I don't know that I believe this anymore. Um, but but we promise one to another and to the Lord that we will do this. Um, and I hope that if in your study of the confession and our tradition you find that your vows have changed, you will have the grace of humility to come forward and say so. Uh, and, and I pray that I would as well, that we all would, that takes humility to do that. And we want to say that in that uh, we stand in this line in which we are stewards, not owners in one sense, that our doctrine is not our own. And, uh, you know, a lot of times we joke about you know, the first time someone, you know, comes into the full knowledge of the doctrines of grace, and we joke about the stages of being a Calvinist, don't we? Uh, the cage stage of a Calvinist. You know what I'm talking about, right? The, the person who wants to pick a fight on every point of the five points with everyone that they come into contact with, uh, because they're right, and this is all it is, and uh, I, I've been there. Uh, I don't know if you've been there, but I, I certainly have. Uh, but in studying the confession, I think a maturing understanding represents the fact that the controlling genius of the Westminster Assembly was that it was, at its core, a consensus work. The Westminster Confession does not represent an absolutely homogenous view of every point of doctrine. And that actually gives us freedom in how we understand the application of the confession. So there is room for understanding on varied points. Uh, think, think, for example, about the fact that uh, the prolocutor uh, William Twiss was a very convinced uh, superlapsarian, but he didn't enforce that upon the assembly, per se. Uh, so understanding the Westminster Confession as a consensus document allows us not to be so dogged in the way we treat the confession and treat other people in the way they process it, but rather allows us to work within the spirit of the confession to promote the humility of approaching this doctrine in a way that says uh, there may be room here. For example, um, I'm fascinated that for uh, many of the debates at the Westminster Assembly, one of the, the extended and protracted debates was, from where do we administer baptism? Uh, is it to be done at the entrance to the church as a way of communicating entrance into the covenant community as was often practiced in the Roman tradition? Is it properly administered from the table where the other sacrament is administered? Uh, or, in the opinion of the Scottish commissioners, should it properly be done from the pulpit? And the question is asked is, can you make a case 
Eustavinum, by divine right, uh, what must be done when it comes to the sacrament of baptism in terms of its administration. But rather than coming to a conclusion that it must be this and never this, we end up with quite a charitable application. Uh, yes, with water. Yes, in the name of our Lord Jesus. But even in the directory for public worship, which we don't adopt in the American Presbyterian tradition, uh, it, it did not end up with such a direct view, and it could be only this. And I think that's a helpful reflection. Or think about this, for example. Uh, are we to read Westminster Confession 3.6 that speaks of humanity being fallen in Adam? Uh, if you're interested in uh, the Lapsarian conversations, okay, uh, systematic theology guys like Lapsarian conversations, and the biblical theology guys and the exegetical theology guys say you're wasting your breath and you don't have the right to talk about those types of things. Uh, anyway, how are we to read Westminster Confession 3.6 about the nature of Adam uh, being fallen in Adam? Uh, are we to read that as a super Lapsarian statement? Uh, that our fallenness is a decree of God before the decree to elect, and therefore superlapsarian. Is Westminster Calvinism exclusively superlapsarianism, or does it represent a uh, subspecies temperance uh, interpretation by which we understand that uh, God's decree is to elect and, and, uh, or to permit the fall and then to decree to election? Well, it's definitely super in your opinion, okay? So you and William Twist would get along just fine. But there were other commissioners to the assembly who would vehemently disagree with you. And isn't that then an example of the controlling genius of the assembly to produce what is truly the confession of faith of that assembly and yet allows the room for people of settled conscience on these matters to confess the faith together, whether you are a superlapsarian or an infralapsarian in your convictions, to say that being fallen in Adam, we are redeemed by Christ. So that's just one example. Or for also, how do you understand, and maybe your presbytery has great debates about this. Uh, in Rivers and Lakes Presbytery, we don't. But what does the confession mean when it speaks about creation in the space of six days? Are we to understand that in its most liberal uh, Hebraist understanding? Uh, or were the divines working against a view of instantaneous medieval creation theology from Augustine, perhaps? Or were they saying it was real space and real time not just literal 24-hour days. And you're going to have a difference of opinion on how you interpret that. But, at the end of the day, regardless of where you come on that conclusion about Lapsarian theology and the, the place of administration of baptism and the way you view the, the view of creation, uh, we can still confess this doctrine together. And I think it's helpful to point these things out so as to further cage the cage stage confessional guy who assumes that this is a totally homogenous view of everything that the confession presents. A, a more mature and even, I think, a more historically accurate understanding of the confession allows for diversity in these understandings. So, uh, not just the, the idea that our doctrine is not our own, but also the fact that public confessions delimit ecclesiastical authority. Uh, and I have a great historical example for you fr from this. I, I wrote about it in, in my article, but I just want to give you a, a brief point. Uh, in 1858, the, the New School General Assembly was meeting, and there was a motion that a church-authorized commentary on all the scriptures be produced. Uh, Dr. Breckenridge, uh, not uh, the Warfield, uh, but another Dr. Breckenridge, uh, said this. 
his resolution reads in part, Inasmuch as the want of a sound, godly, and thorough commentary on the whole Word of God has long been felt to be a grievous want, he goes on to move, Therefore, let it be resolved by the General Assembly that the Board of Publications shall have a authorized commentary on all the Scriptures. And what do you make of that? Uh, should the church do that or not? And uh, Dr. Breckenridge's idea was that five or six men from every synod come together and in the space of one year <laughs> produce a not more than six volume commentary on all the scriptures. Good luck. Okay, and if Dr. Owen takes seven on the book of Hebrews, we can imagine that would be quite difficult. Now, here's my favorite thing. Um, when it comes to especially New School uh, General Assembly meetings, uh, we're thankful that we have in record uh, Dr. Hodge's opinion on pretty much everything from General Assemblies. What did Dr. Charles Hodge think of this idea of the church commissioning an exhaustive commentary on all the scriptures? Maybe you can anticipate it. He said this, If the mere suggestion of such an idea does not strike a man dumb with awe, <laughs> He must be impervious to all argument. Okay? I think we understand what he's getting at there. Uh, it is, is it in the nature of ecclesiastical authority to produce an authorized commentary on all the scriptures to such a degree that it would bind the conscience of all of its ministers that if you fall outside of that commentary, you could be disciplined? Thankfully, one of the benefits of confessional theology is that it delimits the nature of ecclesiastical authority and gives us, by the protection of the liberty of conscience, the freedom to have perhaps some settled interpretations on matters that other brothers or sisters might not agree with exactly. And isn't that a good thing, ultimately? So I think that's a wonderful historical example of the blessing of confessional theology to promote a humility that says, let us go as far as we can in unity, but then let us also realize that there may come to a point to which we cannot go further. And rather than break our fellowship, let us just go thus far and, and no farther uh, arm in arm. I think that spirit of confessionalism is a healthy confessionalism that promotes unity rather than says, you're not reformed enough for me. Right? Now, I understand the tension in that, uh, but that spirit of uh, being more reformed than the next guy is not ultimately good for our denomination. What year was that? Uh, this is in the 1800s. Uh, it was the 1858 New School General Assembly. So, uh, no one make this motion this week, okay, <laughs> to, to have the board, we don't have a board of publications anyway, uh, to have Mike Glodo commission uh, a commentary authorized on all scriptures. 18 months. 18 months, you could do it in 18 months? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Who's going to help him? Anybody? <laughs> sure, Charles Hodge said, if the mere suggestion of such an idea does not strike a man dumb with awe, he must be impervious to all argument. And he goes on in the Presbyterian Review to say that he must either be a fool or assume himself an angel to take on such a work. So, so was the uh, New School Assembly going to, if the motion had passed, going to require subscriptions of commentary or this going to authorize so, I, I don't find in the minutes and the detailed answer to that. I would have to assume that in American Presbyterian tradition they wouldn't 
require subscription. But the, the argument could be made that if the pr church produces and authorizes such a publication, what would that mean for the doctrine of the teaching elders and the ruling elders? Do you know if Hodge was aware that the Synod of Dort did that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm aware of that. I, I was wondering Sorry. about the six volumes. Then I looked up, but it's something struck me. Matthew Henry's commentaries were six volumes, and they were reworked in the early 1800s, re-edited you know, for modern languages. And I wondered if that did the kind of drive. Sure. So further application, you should be asking yourself the question, what does it mean for you in a confessional denomination to, to pursue humility in your confessional theology um, that seeks to advance with clarity the, con the confession of our faith, but to do so with a limp, with humility? I think you're not properly growing in Westminster Calvinism if you're not becoming more humble as you study it. Um, if the equal opposite is true and you're becoming more proud, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're just doing it wrong. So then, uh, in summary, and then we'll move quickly to a brief application, the unifying benefits of confessional doctrine, just these things, but I'm sure there's plenty other, clarity, fidelity, and humility. Uh, in, in summary of that, John Murray, Professor John Murray said, is it not the case that the basic divergences in doctrine become the occasion for disputes that frustrate the unity and dissolve the bond of peace which the church must maintain and display? that it is usually in the, the, the church, in its courts, the divergences of doctrine that end up frustrating our unity. And so focusing on our doctrinal unity to promote our fraternal unity is a good thing and a blessing for our church. Uh, so let me, let me, if you don't mind, just make a quick application uh, here and some kind of take-home points for uh, three arenas, the local church, the courts of the church, and the elders' conscience. Uh, how should we go about applying this to the local church, the courts of the church, and the elders' conscience? Uh, very quickly. Uh, first, in the local church, uh, what's your Sunday school curriculum? What are you, what are you teaching? Uh, I'm sure you have a, a great curriculum, uh, but have you considered maybe an opportunity to reflect more of your confessional tradition in your Sunday school curriculums uh, to what you're teaching your children, what you're teaching your adults, incorporating catechesis into the mode of Sunday school education? Uh, that is in good keeping with our Reformed tradition. Uh, if you're looking for an example or an outline of how to go about doing that, do a series on the Ten Commandments and use the larger catechism or the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, do a series on the Lord's Prayer and take it straight from the larger catechism. You don't need to rework a curriculum yourself. Use what's already there. It's better than what you would come up with anyway. Teach through the Apostles' Creed and the, through the Heidelberg Catechism. You know, use these great ancient uh, confessional resources to provide the substance of your Christian education. Uh, what about uh, during your Lord's Day worship services? Do you have a confession of faith, period? Uh, whether you call it an affirmation of faith or a confession of faith, uh, do, do you do that? Um, if, if not, do you have a good reason why you don't? Uh, do you put into the mouths of God's people these ancient confessions? Do you, do you catechize your church corporately on the Lord's Day? Um, do you stand up to say, uh, people of God, what do you believe? And give them the opportunity to say it together. Uh, here's, here's a couple historical examples of how both Calvin and Knox uh, went about introducing the creed in their worship services. They would say it like this. Calvin would say, In confessing our faith through a creed, God's people testify that they all wish to live and die in the Christian doctrine and religion 
Now, John Knox said this after the Lord's Prayer. He would say, Almighty and ever-living God, grant, we ask you to give us perfect continuance in your lively faith, augmenting the same in us daily until we grow to the full measure of our perfection in Christ, by which we make our confession, saying... I believe. You know, he would introduce it in that way. And there are many other ways that you could do this. People of God, what do you believe? Uh, Brian Chappell gives several other examples, saying, let us profess our faith. Let us join our hearts with the saints of the ages and Christians across the world by affirming what we believe by God's mercy and for Christ's sake in the power of the Spirit. With one heart and voice, let us profess the faith of the church at all times and in all places. Uh, friends, do you on the Lord's Day allow your people to confess the faith? Um, also, in the courts of the church, just uh, quickly, how, do, how are you looking for opportunities in your local court of the session to pursue growth and unity through your confessional doctrine? Uh, are, you, are you training your ruling elders and uh, teaching elders? Are you discipling your ruling elders in this tradition? Uh, do you do not just on-ramp education, but do you do continuing education in confessional theology for your elders? Uh, that's a good thing. Um, not everyone is going to look the same, but just as an example, uh, in, in our church, we spend about uh, a session, about an hour's worth of business only, but only after we've done about an hour and a half worth of prayer and study. Um, uh, because uh, the, the session, uh, at least in our view, is not primarily there to do just business, but to be the shepherds of the church, leading and growing together in their shepherding ministry and their discipleship to the Lord Jesus as well. Use your session meetings uh, for continuing ed and confessional theology. Uh, what about at your presbytery? Uh, are you in your presbytery finding opportunities and encouraging your leadership councils of your presbytery to provide workshops, in-services, uh, ways in which maybe to bring outside teachers to continue growing in the faith. Uh, in our presbytery, uh, our chaplain hosts a chaplain study group uh, for a breakfast conversation. We have an article and then we read it and discuss it together. It's our way of promoting continuing ed in the presbytery. Uh, maybe you do something like that. Maybe you do something better. But let me encourage you in your presbytery, do something to be growing together in our theology and in our confessional theology. And also, uh, here at the GA level, things like this Leadership Institute give us an example to hear these uh, really great reflections. And, and, and by the way, I, I am fully aware that I am just the appetizer for like the best stuff that's coming later on, right? But here are these opportunities to grow in our faith together. And I think the GA also has a responsibility for us as the national court to model these things to us, to, to model uh, reformed worship for us, to model public confessions of faith in the worship service. So at the courts of the church, that application. Uh, and, and finally, uh, the application in your own conscience. Uh, in your conscience as a, a man or woman who has taken an ordination vow in a confessional tradition, um, let us have gracious assumptions about one another in Christ. Because we are together in our doctrinal commitments. Let us have gracious assumptions about one another. Uh, and also, um, I've, I've heard this said uh, by someone else, and I, I really I need this in my own heart, that it is way too easy for us um, especially the type of people who would be in a room like this, who like theology a lot, to get together and start talking about a topic or a person. And the easiest thing to do is say, let me tell you what's wrong about him. Let me tell you what's wrong about that. Let me tell you, you know, promoting this idea of a, you know, a harsh view rather than a, a warm confessionalism. Now, that's not to say that it is wrong for us to point out error. 
but it is to say, let us begin with gracious assumptions and words about one another in Christ in a fellow office-bearing role. Let us do that. Uh, and let me tread very lightly here, because I venture to guess there's a great diversity of opinion on this. Um, as a, a teaching elder in a Reformed confessional denomination, I have a very particular view of the appropriateness of officers affixing their name to other statements. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Good statements, though they may be, the Danvers statement, perhaps, uh, the Nashville statement. Uh, there was a statement on social justice that came out. Great controversy, and I'm aware of that. But these statements are published, and you are asked to sign them. Now, again, there's a divergence of view on this. I just, it's my personal conviction that because that document is not subject to the authority of my presbytery and me being subject to it, I don't really have the right to do that. Um... That's my personal view. I'd be happy to have that conversation uh, with some of us uh, later bit on, but maybe we should be cautious. If not, never signing anything, not saying that, but be cautious about the name of the document that we affix our name to. Uh, now, just real quick, recommended resources. At the very end, I am done with these recommended resources. If you're looking for a great curriculum for communicants, for Sunday school, Stephen Smallman's book has been in print for over 30 years. It goes through the shorter catechism and has been updated to work alongside the ESV text uh, to, to walk the children all the way through uh, the shorter catechism to a means of confessing the faith and receiving admittance to the Lord's Supper. It's a great curriculum. Has anybody here used that or have used it? Do you also promote that? Absolutely. Yeah, it's very good. Very good. Uh, that's just a curriculum. Uh, secondly, I quoted from James Bannerman. Um, uh, this work was published posthumously in 1868, but republished in 2015 uh, by Banner of Truth. This is a systematic ecclesiology, and it's very good. And um, uh, Dr. Red has quoted from Bannerman in his article as well. It's a great work. If you don't have it, let me encourage you to get it. Uh, last year, I told you about uh, this work, and I said it should be on the, the, the nearby bookshelf of every Presbyterian minister. You know, you have faraway bookshelves, and you have near bookshelves that you can reach from your seat. This should be on the nearby bookshelf, Reformation Worship, uh, Jonathan Gib Gib Gibson and Mark Erngay. Uh, this was effectively an expansion upon another work that had been the standard for a very, very long time, the Liturgies of the Western Church by Bard Thompson. Uh, but um, the Reformation Worship, if you're going to get a resource on this, get this one. Uh, it will walk you through some of those historic liturgies. Uh, and I would encourage you to implement them in your churches. Um, I don't care what your style of worship is. Okay, you should have these types of things from the ancient church incorporated into them. Um, and one last one, if, if you don't have Christ-Centered Worship by Brian Chappell, it's a great resource, walking you through every aspect of a traditional Reformed liturgy and incorporating understanding. Uh, so it would be a great way to, to bless your studies and your congregation as you apply to these resources. So, um, that's it uh, from me.